And as you are taking a seat, let's turn in our copy of God's Word to the Old Testament book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, this is the eighth book in the Bible. So early on, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You're wondering, aren't you? Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. And while you're turning there, um, this Tuesday of this week, you're going to receive an email. And the email is from the office, and it's going to be an interview of a prospective children's minister. And we, we believe that the Lord has provided this minister from the inside of this church, from someone who's already here. And here's the plan for the week. So Tuesday, you're going to get this video email, and it's just a question, kind of an interview, just questions to this, this, this lady about her view of ministry, her story. She'll answer a few questions you may have, and then on Wednesday evening, we're going to meet together, and I want to be able to explain what we're thinking on this, what we're praying through with this, give you an opportunity to ask any questions you may have, and then next Sunday, we will vote on this together as a church. So, Tuesday, you'll receive an email. Wednesday, we'll meet together and discuss details of this, and then next Sunday, we will vote on this. So, that's the plan for this week. So, if you would be praying for that, for wisdom, and the Lord would provide and continue to provide for this church as He has faithfully done for nearing 200 years. The book of Ruth. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice the placement of this book. I just mentioned this to you just a few moments ago. If you look right before Ruth, what's there? The book of Judges. And Judges tells the story, it happens after the death of Joshua, and tells the story of Israel, of the people of God, and how they go from trusting God to really rebelling against Him, to forsaking Him, to going their own way, they get into trouble, they get into some sort of bondage, they cry out to God, and He raises up for them a, a judge, a deliverer, a, a warrior, essentially, who fights for them and who breaks them free from their dangers and for their troubles. And then they do it again. They forsake the Lord, they go their own way, they get in trouble, they cry out, God raises up a judge, wash, rinse, repeat over and over and over again. I remember when we were on COVID quarantine back in January, I was, I was um, blessed to spend time with my two teenage boys. And they watched like all five or four or ten, however many pirates of the Caribbean there were. And I said to them, it's the same story every time. Just stop watching it. But I wasn't allowed to leave the room. That's judges. It's the same story over and over and over again. They never learn. And it ends with these ominous words. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you look behind Ruth, just a few pages, you come to the book of 1 Samuel. Incredible book. Amazing stories in this book. We see the, 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 the passage from Judges towards the installation of a king in Israel. Israel had never had a king like the other nations. Come 1 Samuel, they begin to get those kings. You hear, you hear the story of Saul, of David, of Solomon. 
You get great stories like the capture of the Ark of God by the Philistines and God just working over Dagon, the Philistine god. You see Saul's victory over the Ammonites. You see David versus Goliath. You get both before and after Ruth. You get these massive books of adventure and conflict of warriors that are fighting on this international scale and right in the midst of them, right in the midst of the loudness of those voices, of the brash and quite frankly violent, hard to read stories sometimes, right sandwiched between those two books is this book, the book of Ruth. So you've got stories of warriors, of battles, of kings, massive things happening like Samson, Gideon, Jephthah, David, Solomon. You see God's deliverance on this grand scale, holy redemption coming. But right in between them is this quiet story of a widow named Naomi, of a foreigner named Ruth, of a farmer named Boaz. And what's so interesting about it is because of the loudness of both sides, on each side at the beginning and at the end of Ruth, Ruth is, is Judges and 1 Samuel, you get the story of God's redemption coming in a place that you don't expect it. What should it remind us? That very rarely are you going to see God working in these massive, mighty ways in your life. That very rarely do you have these life-changing events where you've got a decision to be made and a battle to be fought. What does faithfulness usually look like? It usually looks like a Monday to Friday, a weekend, a Sunday, wash, rinse, repeat. It's through the daily seemingly inconsequential moments into which God speaks and through which God moves. That's what we see in Ruth. So if you would, let's stand together, and we're going to read together Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. And this is what whomever wrote it is writing to us under the inspiration of the Spirit. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. 
But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I want to give you an outline this morning for how we'll look through this chapter. That's two weeks in a row, huh? Look at that. First off, I want you to see the pain involved. The pain involved, secondly, the provision that comes. And thirdly, the promise that is given. So three words can suffice, pain, provision, and promise. Now let's pray. Father, open your word to us that we may hear, we may see, we may understand, we may believe. Lord, you've told us to pray for those in authority and in high positions. Lord, we look to our nation and we want to thank you for the freedom that has been purchased by the blood of many. We want to pray for our leaders, Lord, that you would lead them to repentance and faith. That they would see that you, God, are king that you are worthy to be followed, to be heeded, to be obeyed. Give them wisdom, we pray, to lead in righteousness and lead according to your goodness and your law. I pray for our president, that you would draw him to yourself in faith. For our vice president, that you would draw her to yourself in faith. Save them, Lord. May it be that one day upon our death, we spend all eternity alongside them worshiping you. Lord, I pray that you would bless this nation. I don't mean with prosperity or even with peace at this point. Bless us with repentance. To turn from our wicked ways and to trust you. To stop suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, as Romans 1 says. To stop exchanging the truth of God for a lie. To stop worshiping the creature rather than the creator. God, show us in this nation that you are God, you are King, you are Lord. And may it not be that we simply bow the knee when we see you. May we as a nation bow our knee to you now in obedience and in faith. Now may we as a church do the same. 
may we as individuals bow before you now in worship. In Christ's name, amen. During the days of Judges, there was a famine in the land. Times were hard. They were hard. Everyone was doing what they thought was right. You know what that means? They did whatever they wanted. They did what they thought was right. They didn't do what the Lord wanted. They didn't do what He called them to. They didn't love Him above all. They didn't love their neighbor as themselves. That's ridiculous. They did what they wanted. They took what they wanted. They loved what they wanted to love. It was all about them. And you can look in our nation right now. Wherever people forsake the law and the morality of God to do what they think is right, chaos reigns. And that's the way Israel was. Things were hard in Israel. And now they've gotten harder because a famine has come. There's no food. Well, why would there be no food? Because there was no rain. And no rain means no crops. No crops mean there's nothing to eat. Here they are in Bethlehem. This is where the story is set. Bethlehem actually means in the Hebrew, the house of bread. Beth is house. Lehem is bread. The house of bread has no bread. The famine has come, and it's severe enough that this family of four decides to pack up and move from their home, to move not only from their house, but to move from the land that was theirs. Not only the land that was theirs, but the land that God had given to His people. They were moving out of Israel completely, and they were going to go east, past the Dead Sea, to the land of Moab. Now listen, I, I imagine some of you understand this. I know there, there are people in this room who have been at, and you may be at a place right now, where you have no food. Where, where times are so hard for you, or have been so hard for you, that you were desperate. That you had nowhere to go, you felt no food. No way to care. No way to take care of yourself. Listen, if that's where you are right now, come find me after the service. Come up. Let's talk. But you've been at that place where you knew that survival meant you had to get out of where you were, that something had to change completely. Listen, there, there are kids in this city right now who will go to bed hungry tonight. There are people in this world that have no food. But let's not think it's only in different nations and other places it's here. Some of you hear this and you feel it. You get it. And this man decides to take his wife and his two sons and they leave for Moab. They leave the land of their people, the land of the God of Israel, the land of promise, the land of conquest, the land that was to be an inheritance for them forever and ever. And they go east, outside of the land of promise, outside of the community of Israel, outside to Moab. Now, the people of Moab, they were cousins to the people of Israel. But they were your weird cousins who you really didn't want to show up at the family reunion. I don't know if, if, if you know your Bible, and you, you probably have to really be detailed to know this one. Moab are the descendants of Lot. And if you remember, Lot had an incestuous relationship with his two daughters. That's where Moab comes from. 
Another place where Moab is mentioned in the scriptures is when, e when Israel is brought safely out of slavery in Egypt. They're passing through the lands, and Moab will not let the people of Israel come through their land because they hate them, because they don't trust them. They even hire a prophet, Balaam, to speak against and prophesy against Israel. We see that story in Deuteronomy chapter 22. So in Deuteronomy chapter 23, God actually declares that no descendant of Moab will come into his assembly, that they literally are not allowed to be in his assembly. So not only are these hard times because the judges are around, not only are they having to leave their home due to famine, they're moving among a people that hate them. And they arrive there, and we're told that Elimelech, the husband of Ruth, of Naomi, excuse me, dies, and she's left with her two sons. And these two sons, they take for themselves Moabite wives, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And we're told that within 10 years of moving from Bethlehem to Moab, both her sons, Malon and Kilion, die as well. And verse 5 sums it up briefly like this, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. How did we say we're going to outline this chapter? To quote Mr. T from Rocky Three, pain. I thought it was good. <laughs> so did Jacob. Love you, man. Life is hard, but then the famine comes. Life is hard. And then you have to leave your home. Life is hard, and then your husband dies. Life is hard, then one of your sons dies. Life is hard, and you've buried everyone. I don't know if you remember this. I had to leave last year and go to do a funeral in Atlanta of a four-year-old who died of a heart attack. And I remember what her mom said it was the only child. They were a little higher up in age, and she just says, I was a mom, and now I'm not anymore. Like, imagine this pain she's in. I was a wife, but not anymore. I was a mom. Those days are gone. And for Naomi, family's a thing of the past. That what she had is gone. Those days are done. And she describes how she's doing through all of this. What does she say? Well, en route back to Bethlehem, she turns to her two daughters-in-law, and, and she says this in verse 8. Go home. Just go. Return, each of you, to your mother's house. And they begin arguing back with her. No, we're going to go with you. And Naomi responds, why? Why go with me? I don't have sons anymore. I don't have a husband anymore. Leave. Go home. And she says why in verse 13. Look, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake because the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. God has turned on me. His hand is against me. Do you remember the judges? God was sovereign over that. You remember the famine? He did that. My, God, my husband, God is the one who gives life and takes it away. My sons, 
Well, he's the one that numbers our days. God did all of it. And she's right. She's right. God is sovereign over life, and God is sovereign over death. God is sovereign over the rains, and he's sovereign over the fruit of the fields. There is not a thing in this world, not a galaxy far, far away, not a hair that is still on your head over which he is not sovereign. Every single thing in this world bows to his sovereignty. He is the king, he is the ruler, he is the creator, he is the sustainer, and everything from the stars in the sky to the sparrow who cannot fall from the sky without his word bows to him. She's right. The hand of the Lord is involved in every single bit of her pain, and yet as right as she is on that, she is as wrong in the fact that he has turned against her. Her judgment is right, that he is sovereign over everything that has happened. Her judgment is wrong in his purposes. This woman is in deep pain. And you know as well as I do that oftentimes our pain can be so bad that it's blinding. Naomi's pain has caused her to question the goodness and the worth of her sovereign God. And the question that she had then is a question that we still hear and we still wrestle with 2,900 years later, and it might be in your mind today, the problem of pain. How could an all-powerful and all-good God allow the evil that is in this world? Either he can't stop it, and so he's not all-powerful, or he can stop it, and any God that would allow this kind of evil is obviously not good. Naomi's looking at her life and the loss she's experienced, and she says to Ruth and to Orpah, go home. Go home to your family. Go home to your people. Go home to your gods. Why does she say that? Because she is no longer sure whether her God is worth following at all. She looks at her life. She looks at her pain. And she said, he took my home. He took my husband. He took my sons. And so she sees that and she deduces clearly the hand of the Lord is against me. Now some of you, you've had similar pain that the loss you've experienced, you see it and you're making these judgments about life and about God and the way your life has gone, you have come to the conclusion that, you're, that the hand of the Lord is against you. You've come to the, the, the place where you're not really sure that he's worth following anymore anyways. You may still be here. You may still listen. You still sing. You still close your eyes when we pray. But deep down, you don't really believe this anymore. He turned against you at some point when he did that he clearly turned against you. He crossed the line when he didn't answer that prayer, when you didn't get that job, that spouse, that fill in the blank. But the book of Ruth is one that yells at us in the midst of the darkness that it's exactly in the darkness where the light is going to shine the brightest. 
And it's in the midst of this deep pain in the life of Naomi that a merciful provision takes place. And that brings us to our second point, provision. Why are Naomi and Ruth and Orpah making their way back to Bethlehem? Because the house of bread was stocked once again. Verse 6 tells us that she was in the fields of Moab, and she heard that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. Now picture this. This woman is a widow, no sons. And in that culture, that was a dangerous place to be. It was the man who provided. And if the husband had passed away, it was the sons who provided. And when they passed, Lord willing, you had men who obeyed the word of the Lord to love him above all else and to love their neighbor as themselves. But that's a problem when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Naomi's in a dangerous place. And this word she hears is a good word. It's good news. And yet in the hardness of her heart, she doesn't recognize the provision of God. She doesn't see his hand. She doesn't believe his love. She doesn't trust his heart. All she sees is what she doesn't have. And her focus is only on what's been taken from her. Even right in front of her, she has two daughters-in-law who are clinging to her. She doesn't even recognize that this is a provision of God. She doesn't see his kindness at work in her life. She's been blinded to his gracious provision for her. Have you? Do you have eyes to see the goodness of God? It's there. It's in your life. Are your eyes so focused on what you desire and don't have that you don't see what you have but don't deserve? Like the Bible tells us that every single good thing in our lives is a gracious gift of God. I had a dream last night. I'm going to tell you about it. And I cleared it with this man before I told this story. I had a dream last night that it was my birthday and Sam Mador gave me a gift. It's not my birthday. But his gift to me, my 79-year-old Marine buddy sitting in the back right now, his gift to me was that he said, hey, I'm going to take you skydiving. And right when he said it, I thought, I don't like heights. I don't like falling from heights. I like planes that work. Jumping out of one makes no sense. But how could I tell my friend that I thought his gift was terrible? And so I said, oh, let's, let's go, Sam. Let's go skydiving. Why am I telling you that? Because this morning I woke up, and my first words were, thank God. <laughs> it was just a dream. And then it occurred to me, that's a great way to start the day. Thank God. Thank you, God. Should be our first thought each morning. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, that we are to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So brothers and sisters, stop focusing on what you don't have. 
And turn your eyes toward God's gracious moment-by-moment provision for you. It's there. Set your eyes to see it. Naomi doesn't see it. But she's about to have this provision that she's blinded to modeled for her. And it comes from a place where you may not expect it. Here she is telling her daughters-in-law to leave her, to go home, to seek a husband in Moab. Naomi is telling them, I'm no good for you. I'm no use for you. I'm a waste for you. Forget me and go. To follow me is to go to your death. Your gods are probably fine too. No problem. And Ruth, the Moabitess, is about to speak. And just like in the story of Jonah that we saw a few months ago, where the believer speaks like an unbeliever, and it's the pagans who come to faith, that's what we see right here. Ruth essentially responds to Naomi with, you've spoken, now it's my turn. You talked, I listened, now hear me. Stop trying to convince me. My mind is made up. Where you go, I will go. Your land will be my land. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I've said it, I've committed. Now may God strike me down if I neglect my oath. Ruth says to her, I'm making a promise to you. I'm committing to you. I am yours and you are mine. And she's not simply saying, I'm going to stay a Moabite, but I'm going to become one of you. She's not saying, I'm going to worship my God and add your God's trinket to my shelf. No. I'm leaving my home because your home will be my home. I'm leaving my land because your land will be my land. I'm leaving my God because your God will be my God. What just happened? What we're seeing is a glimpse of a sovereign redeemer. A redeemer who would take Ruth, this foreigner, and not even just a foreigner, a Moabite, one who we said earlier in Deuteronomy wasn't even allowed in the assembly of God. And yet the one true God takes this Moabite outsider, this pagan worshiper of false gods, and he fundamentally from the inside out changes her. He makes her new. He takes her from from her home, from her people, from her gods, and makes her his. Listen, the words of Naomi, go home, find a husband. Those words make sense. And Orpah was not wrong to listen to those words. Yet something changed in Ruth where she wasn't willing to listen to them. Something changed in Ruth where she knew that to go back to that would be to run from life itself. God had given Ruth faith even if Naomi at that moment didn't have it. She even calls him not just God, She calls him Yahweh, the covenant name of God. What is she saying? She's saying, I'm leaving all I had, not just to be with Naomi, but to be under the wing of the God of Naomi. The Redeemer's at work right in front of her and in the life of Ruth. And he's making Ruth right here in this instance, not only an object of his mercy, but a conduit 
of his mercy. Ruth says to Naomi, you think you're worthless? A dead end? You think God is against you, but I won't leave you, and I won't forsake you. And through her words, God is shining light into the darkness. So through this new child of God to whom God has given faith, the Lord is speaking, and the Lord is giving Naomi just what she needs. She thinks her life is done and that she is, by all intents and purposes, dead because she has bought the lie that God's hand is against her. And his work in Ruth is a sign that God brings the dead to life and that he will not leave. He will not forsake her and his hand will never turn against her. This morning, what have we gathered to do? We've gathered to set our eyes on the king. We've gathered to be reminded because more than likely this week you've forgotten that in the midst of a fallen world, in the midst of pain and trouble, you've forgotten who he is. You've forgotten that in your greatest need, he's provided for you the Savior, the only Savior, Jesus Christ. That his son came and lived and died and rose again. That through faith in him, you could be saved. That foreigners and outsiders like you and me could be saved. Could be brought into the assembly of God. You've forgotten his promise that anyone who comes to him will never be cast out. That if you come to him in faith, you will be forever and always his. You've forgotten his promise that he's working out all things in his sovereign will for your good purposes. <clears throat> he, he's, he's doing that. He's doing that through the book of Ruth. He's doing that through the life of Naomi, and if you're a child of God through faith in Jesus, then he's doing it through you. And every single thing, every single loss, every single pain, every single hurt, every trial, every trouble is being orchestrated by him for your redemption. Brothers and sisters, remember this morning that our God is sovereign. He does whatever he wants. Remember that our God is powerful. He can do whatever He wants. Remember that our God is good, and you can trust Him. So this morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Redeemer, today's the day. Look to Him in faith. Ask Him to save you and make you new and make you His. He's faithful. He will surely do it. That's the God we have come to worship this morning. That's the God who has come to us in redemption. And that's the God to whom we pray and sing. So let's do that. Let's end our time in prayer and then we will sing together. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are sovereign. That you are intimately involved in every single thing that happens in this world. We don't always understand it. We don't always understand why you're doing what you're doing or why you're allowing what you're allowing. But Lord, may we have faith to trust that you are God, you are powerful, you are sovereign, and that you are good. And may we have faith to trust that even when we can't see your hand, that we can trust your heart. Now do a work in us, we pray by the hearing, 
believing and obeying of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.